Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Disruptive Innovation Podcast Series. I'm your host for this episode, Mike Grandinetti. We're recording live on the MIT campus in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The event that we are recording is a masterclass program preparing for and competing with the tech titans of China. As a result, this episode will be different in format than all prior episodes. I also want to point our regular listeners to episode three. Episode three was a deep dive on China's innovation ascendancy, and it will complement the content that you hear in this episode. Sorry for the delay. Um, good evening. My name is Katya Wald. I'm the executive director here at the MIT Enterprise Forum. Um, welcome to our very first innovation series event of our 2019-2020 program year. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with the MIT Enterprise Forum, uh, we produce nearly 40 programs from September to June. Uh, with the help of a small but mighty staff and a great community of volunteers and sponsors. Our innovation series programs, like the one tonight, are intended to cover all aspects of the innovation ecosystem and take on both industry-specific and interdisciplinary topics as part of our efforts to support technology entrepreneurs. Programs like our Start Smart class for entrepreneurs and our mentor program are designed specifically to accelerate the success of very early stage companies as early as concept and pre-seed, but prior to significant institutional funding. As you can see, we have a very full and diverse calendar of events coming up, and we, may, we keep adding more. Um, so please make sure to add yourself to our mailing list to get the latest and greatest updates. Um, including notifications of our application deadlines, like for our mentor program. As I mentioned before, we can't do what we do without help. Um, our annual gold sponsors, Witham, Caldwell IP, Chen PR, Hamilton Brooks Smith Reynolds, Morse, and Wolf Greenfield provide key financial support to help us do what we do best. Um, also, for this event, we worked with many wonderful marketing partners to get the word out. Thanks to all of the organizations listed here on this slide for the support. Um, a lot of these folks we'd never worked with before, so I'm really thankful to have gotten to know this group of people as well. Um, now, just a couple of quick housekeeping items for tonight. Uh, Rebecca will be upstairs signing books in the R&D pub after the event. The R&D pub is on the fourth floor. It's a little bit hard to find in this beautifully designed maze of a building, but we will try to get you up there. Um, there is an elevator. If you follow this back wall, there's an elevator you take up to the fourth floor. Um, also, just so you know, our friends at WGBH's forum network um, is recording tonight. So please note, if you ask questions during the Q&A, we'll have a mic going around that you will be recorded. 
Um, and finally, I'm particularly excited about this program tonight because I've heard from many startup leaders in our community on the topic of US-China relations. They're caught in the middle and struggle with everything from manufacturing issues to having investors support. So I want to thank Mike Grandinetti, a longtime supporter of ours, for bringing this idea for this program to us. It was super interesting. And with that, I'm going to have Mike kick it off. Thank you. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to MIT, and welcome to the Status Center and the iconic Frank Gehry Design Building. It's great to see friends and business associates to join us tonight, and, and just building on what Katya just said, right? And, and this is a phrase attributed to Confucius, although it's not quite clear that it actually was something that he actually said, and it's actually not a blessing, but a curse, one of three curses. May you live in interesting times. And I don't think there is any question that when it comes to China-US relations, given what we're hearing on the news day in and day out, we are indeed living in probably unprecedented times in our lifetimes, okay? certainly for the last 40 years. So the Chinese Communist Party was born in 1949. They are about to celebrate the 70th anniversary of the creation of the party. And from the time of Mao, there has been a focus on the concept of Ganshao. Okay? And in characters, Ganshao looks like this, to surpass or to overtake, okay? Now, on Friday night at Fenway Park, some of you may have been fortunate enough to see one of the legendary rock and roll bands of all time, The Who, rock the house. One of the most famous songs by The Who is Won't Get Fooled Again, and one of the great lines is, meet the old boss, he's the same as the new boss. Now, why would I be referencing The Who? and a talk on MIT-China relations, or US-China relations. What is remarkable about the leadership of the party since the time of Mao in 1949 is that each and every one of the premiers of the party has been consistently disciplined and relentless in their pursuit of Ganshao. It is unimaginable in American politics, which is a pendulum that goes through a cycle from hard left to hard right with no center as we switch parties, China has taken an extremely different and far more disciplined approach over the last 70 years. Okay? One of my wonderful Chinese MBA students who just graduated, I asked him his thoughts. In my opinion, we are developing this long-term strategy because we have suffered, and I'll paraphrase a little bit, throughout our history. All of us as Chinese were educated or witness to the history of how we were left behind from the world, and it's one of the strongest motivations, okay? This is at the essence of what is driving China's ascendancy into becoming a global technological powerhouse, okay? And as we get here to the penultimate leader, Xi, okay, um, nothing is different. In fact, it's only been accelerated. 
China has always understood that technology would be a critical part of their ascendancy. Back in the day, Mao looked to their communist big brother, Russia, for inspiration because they saw that with the great technological advances that they were making in the former Soviet Union, that they were indeed a global superpower. So there's always been this aspiration to invest in technology for power, political power for prestige, for wealth. Okay? So as you, some of you are a little bit too young to remember this, but we were in a space race with Russia. And Russia beat us to the punch. In 1957, they launched their Sputnik satellite into space. And it was a shot across the bow, which ultimately led President John F. Kennedy to challenge the United States to head to the moon. Okay? We are in a very different but also similar kind of race today with China. Okay? Mao then talked about the Great Leap Forward. And he was quite ambitious. Okay? He was too ambitious, and he began to try to bring people from the farms into the city and to go from an agrarian economy to a, an economy of manufacturing. But they weren't quite ready to do it. And it turned out to be a disastrous, catastrophic policy. A policy that led to massive st uh, starvation and the death of tens of millions of Chinese citizens. Okay? His deputy, Zhao Enlai, his protege, eventually became premier. And he continued the concept of Ganshao. He talked about the four modernizations agriculture, industry, science, and tech in national defense. And then very quickly, he and uh, Mao passed the same year. And they handed over the Communist Party to Deng. And Deng was, in fact, a real reformer. His initial policy was, we want to catch up with the West. They invested at the time, which was significant capital for China, 15 billion USD in importing technology into mainland China. It was not something that was done with a lot of success. And the country faced soaring debt. And it led them to do a hard reset, right? So they have been pivoting consistently, never losing sight of their vision. And this led to market reforms, a national industrial policy, similar to Japanese industrial policy that led to their ascendance as a great manufacturing power in the 1970s and the 1980s under MIDI, and ultimately the opening of the market. Okay? And here, obviously, for those of you who uh, may not recognize Jimmy Carter, I know we've got a lot of younger folks in the room, you know, this, was a, this was a big opening of the Chinese market. And not surprisingly, okay, American companies were seduced into this massive market opportunity. They were told they were welcome to come and participate in this great mass market. Foreign direct investment, of course. Knowledge transfer, of course. But something a little bit more problematic. Okay? And this, of course, is the, uh, the, the vast amount of industrial espionage that has been conducted. Right? And under the concept of Ganshou, and thinking about what my student Jia Shang shared, right? There was this belief that the West had done harm to China, and there was a sense that everything about making them, making the Chinese uh, party and the country great again, everything was in bounds. 
And so there was a relatively uh, damaging 60 minutes video called Collateral Damage that discussed in some level of detail an agency in China, government agency where their job every day is to go into the United States, is to break into US networks and steal IP, okay? In 1983, uh, after Deng passed, uh, Zhao Jiang came up with his leapfrog strategy. Leapfrog in key high-tech fields, IT, automation, bioengineering, okay? And it led to the formation of a couple of national champion Chinese companies. The first was Lenovo. Li Shunzi was an engineer at a state-run Chinese Academy of Sciences. He founded Lenovo as a side hustle, and he's grown it into one of the great PC makers on the planet. His daughter actually runs Didi, and Travis Kalanick was doing one hell of a job raising money until he ran into Didi in China, and he got knocked on his butt. So this is a woman who grew up in a very entrepreneurial household with someone who built a world-class company, learned at her father's knee, and she's done a great job of creating a next-generation Chinese platform company, Didi. Okay. A much more controversial company was founded by Reng Zhengfei. Right? He was an official in the People's Liberation Army Corps of Engineering. Okay, his job at the time was to import and to do reverse engineering on electronics and network equipment and hardware. And he started Huawei in 1987, okay? and he won a lot of high profile of endorsements of very senior level people in the party. He was loaned tens of billions of dollars, and Huawei became a national champion, as it is today in China. There's a lot of emotion around the tension that the US has been laying at the feet of Huawei over the last couple of years, okay? So the message from China has been, it doesn't matter how slowly you go as long as you do not stop. So the Beatles on their, on their album talked about the long and winding road. And China has in fact done that very thing, right? They've taken a 70 year path but they have gotten to their end destination. If you look at the economic transformation of China, it is remarkable, okay? When they opened up the market in 1978, their GDP was $150 billion. Today, their GDP is $12 trillion. Previously, their GDP was about 1% of global GDP. Today, it is roughly uh, 16% of global GDP. So make no mistake, China has made extraordinary progress. They don't play the short-term game the way we do in the United States. They think in terms of 100-year epics, and they have succeeded in spades, okay? Recently, they opened up the star market. The star market is their NASDAQ. It opened up in July. They floated their first 25 companies on the star market. And so, you know, they are bringing things closer to home. About a year ago, The Economist wrote an extremely uh, controversial article called Peak Valley, talking about has Silicon Valley hit its peak, okay? And there's a lot of arguments that it's have some real struggles and that obviously the cost of doing business, the cost of living in Silicon Valley is very tough, okay? Max Levchin was here not that long ago, and I asked him during a panel whether he thought that China would move past the US. And disappointingly, his message was not a chance, 
okay? And we can't afford to be naive, and we cannot afford to put our head in the sand. We are working against a country that is absolutely committed to superior technological leadership by 2030, okay? So Peak Valley shows that innovation everywhere is becoming harder. Even the great Alibaba has struggled, right? Outside of China, a lot of Chinese companies have struggled to establish market dominance in markets outside of their home country. It's been tough, okay? Huawei, of course, has not struggled. Huawei dominates the world of telecom, and they are undisputedly the leaders in 5G. Now, what's even more incredible, I don't know how many of you heard this, is that just a few days ago, uh, Huawei's CEO offered to share their technology, their patents, their know-how with the Western, a Western company. Of course, not for free, as a way to assuage a lot of the concerns that have been laid at the feet of the company by Trump and his administration. Okay? And so we are in a race. There is no question about it. I tell a lot of my students that today, when I teach my disruptive innovation class, I don't use US case studies anymore. I use Chinese case studies. I think Chinese companies are being incredibly innovative. Okay? We have come a long, long way. And China is an absolutely world-class technological innovator, not just at the product level, but at the business model level as well. So Xi's vision for the future, national rejuvenation, an asymmetrical strategy to surpass the US, made in China 2025, AI superiority by 2030. And this is the last point I'll make. Just a couple of days ago, Michael Kratzios, the US CTO, made an announcement thinking that he would be um, given lots of accolades that the US was committing 1 billion USD to non-defense related AI R&D. He got slapped. It was amazing how badly he got slapped, including Jackie Medecki, the director of uh, uh, Intel's US AI and healthcare policy division, said something pretty dramatic, right? We're nowhere near where we should be in government funding for AI research. There's a government role, and frankly, there's a little bit of failure here to show us examples of AI and how AI can help us. So I wanted to set the stage for Rebecca, because now you're going to hear a lot about what's happening in China. But I wanted to share with you the path to how we got there. This was not something that just happened overnight. It has been a 70-year journey, and we are at that point where we've got an incredibly significant global competitor that we are going to be doing battle with going forward. Rebecca? Thank you, Mike. That was a very excellent stage setter. I really appreciate it. And I hope that you'll be using some of the case studies from Tech Titans of China in your disruptive innovation classes. There's plenty of case studies in there. Many of many of the uh, companies that I write about are profiled in depth uh, in the new book. So great segue, Rebecca, in terms of um, the, the point you just raised, right? So in 2014, Harvard Business yeah. Review wrote, a cover story that was titled, Why Can't China Innovate? <laughs> and five years later, we're sitting here, just down the road. And of course, I think hopefully between the two of us, we've made a pretty strong case that can, China certainly not only can, but is innovating and innovating right. relentlessly. Right. What did they miss? Uh, <laughs> it's all about timing. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, and speaking about timing, uh, Silicon Dragon, when my first book came out in 2008, 
it was ahead of its time and nobody believed that. And so I think that there was a lot of carryover from that. There's no way that China can innovate. Uh, it's just ridiculous to think that they can and there's no examples of it. And so, but you really have to be there yeah. to see it happening. You have to have a grassroots perspective and, and, and go to the market. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we should know with the number of Chinese that come over here to get educated at great institutions and come out of our R&D labs and spend time with some of our startups, that certainly they're bringing the know-how back home with them, absolutely. Yeah. So one of the things that you know, we've talked about before, right, um, not only is, is there a unified national policy, right. not only is there a massive amount of venture capital, there's a work ethic that is quite extraordinary. So there's this right. 996 culture, right? Mm -hmm. 996, nine hours a day, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., yep. 12, six days a week, which you said is really more like 10, 10, 7 it culture. Is. <laughs> and Michael Moritz, the legendary uh, managing partner of Sequoia, excoriated U.S. startups as being too lazy. But yet I know that there have been some Chinese entrepreneurs that have tried to resist this. How, is there a, a chance of a backlash when people are working 13, 14 hours a day, seven days a week. I mean, what, how does that play out over the long term? Because we're all human and, and we're all driven, but there's a point where the, the body breaks down. How does that work itself out? I think some of them, are, they just feed off that. Yeah. They feed off that whole entrepreneurial energy. And mm -hmm. when you're caught up in it, it's hard to, it's hard to think about anything else. And uh, look, I'll, I'll confess to uh, being right there with them in, yeah, in some sure. cases. You know, in China too, if you don't, if you don't just uh, give it everything you have, yeah. you're you're going to be left behind. Yeah. Okay. You will you will be uh, the next person. Yeah. Will come up there say, "Well, I'll do it then. You know, I'll, I'll beat you to that. I will beat you to that, and they will beat you to it very fast." Yeah. Okay. So China, it, that's not the case in Silicon Valley, I don't think. Yeah. Silicon Valley, you have a luxury. You can have weekends. You can go out sailing or go out hiking on the weekends, but in China, you don't see that very often. And Jack Ma is a big proponent of this whole 996 entrepreneurial culture. Right. He's helping to make it a mainstream uh, idea in China. Interesting, and then obviously the country has followed suit. Yes. So there's no doubt that the, the, the number of US companies that have succeeded in China, you can, you can literally count on one hand. Right? I mean, it's been very, very difficult for the U.S. to compete there. Now, the Chinese have struggled outside of China, right? And obviously they that have. Wall Street Journal article yeah. about Alibaba struggling in Vietnam. Why do you think there's been such a challenge? I know that Xiaomi has had some success. Huawei, of course, is a huge exception to the rule. They've been dominant, right? And if it wasn't for legislative actions and right. sanctions, they would be in pretty much every country in the world. But if we push right. aside Huawei, why has China struggled outside of the mainland? Well, it is interesting in that, um, and I don't think it's really widely um, uh, known that China has really not been that, su that successful yeah. in going global right. until now. Yeah. And now we're starting to see this open up so that you see a company like, uh, or a, a mobile app like TikTok go global. Yeah. Uh, right. But other companies, uh, Baidu, um, has never really ventured out of China except for Japan, and they yeah. failed in Japan. Yeah. They failed in Japan 
Alibaba is going, taking its model by buying into Southeast Asian companies, but they're not doing that here in the U.S. They are not acquiring and investing in e-commerce companies here in the U.S. because we already have our dominant one. Yeah. We have Amazon. Right. But even though I would argue that Alibaba is more advanced than Amazon is in e-retailing and in some of the ideas that they have on, on delivery, uh, I would say that uh, Alibaba is not going to be foolish enough to come in here and try to compete with Amazon. Yeah. Okay. I think the splinter net phrase is a great one. So I, I share your enthusiasm and I want to, I want to kind of do a deep dive on that on a couple of issues, right? So there's no question, right? And, and we're here in Boston and although, you know, and we're on the MIT campus, we're on Kendall Square, the, the world's largest, most successful biotech cluster. And there's been a massive reduction in the amount of capital flowing into the, this economy. So there's definitely been a lot of people that have been affected directly by a lack of Chinese money coming into the biotech sector here in Boston. Um, one of the things that I've seen personally, I'd like to get your perspective, but I spent quite a bit of time in Tel Aviv. Mm -hmm. And just as the Chinese VC community seems to be pivoting to Southeast Asia, right. you know, it's hard to miss the number of Chinese delegations visiting Israeli venture capital firms or doing their tours of of Tel Aviv and the startup nation ecosystem right. to the point where, you know, I have trouble finding an English language newspaper at Ben Gurion Airport, but I can find five, <laughs> you know, um, uh, yeah. Mandarin language yeah. newspapers. So what's happening there and how do you reconcile the pivot to Southeast Asia as well as the pivot to yeah. Israel as well? Well, Israel loves China capital. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, sure. They need it. They need it. And Israel needs the China market. Yeah. So it's a perfect marriage. Yeah. And China loves their technology as well, right? I mean, world-class right. technology. Yeah, so a number yeah. of the venture funds have capital from China. Okay. And a number of the Israeli companies are moving into China. And, and it's very interesting that Technion, a leading technology university, yeah. is set up in China. Very interesting. Yeah, <laughs> makes sense though, right? It makes sense. Yeah. So now the star market is new, right? Just since July, yeah. um, and obviously it's another part of the made in China and yeah. keeping capital close to home. Um, you know, the the original companies that were floated on it were probably not China's best ambassadors, and I know there's been some challenges there. But what do you see that turning into over time? It's another splinter net type of activity, you think? It's just Chinese companies will go public, you know, tech companies will go public in, in uh, China on star market, and the rest of the world will go public on, on I NASDAQ? I think the quality companies, yeah. uh, they want to go to NASDAQ and okay. NYSE. It's a trophy. Yeah, okay. It's still a badge of honor. Yeah. And I don't see this star muck replacing it okay. anytime soon. Okay, so it's a, it's a baby step. But as the Chinese have proven, they, they're willing to take many baby steps to get yeah. to where they want to go. So 50 years from now, Maybe 50 it, could years be, from it now. could be NASDAQ, but today well, we it's... Can ask, we can ask Hearst yeah. about what he and thinks And I'd love to get his perspective when you have him up here. Yeah. Yeah. So Hong Kong, of course, has been an interesting uh, place, right? Yeah. It's, Hong Kong's been... And I'll, I'll just close with one or two last questions. Hong Kong, obviously a lot of unrest. Um, a very interesting um, attempt for the... Uh, Hong Kong Stock Exchange to acquire the London Stock Exchange in quite a rebuke, right? Which was, we don't know if Hong Kong will continue to be the sort of the, the center of the yeah. Asian yeah. financial capital yeah. markets. Yeah. And I realize you don't have a crystal ball, but it's a pretty tense situation there. Um, what, what do you think is the likely outcome? Because it's been, for it's Hong been going Kong? on. Yeah, for Hong Kong. Because it's been going on now for 15 weeks, right? And it seems to be getting more and more polarized with 
you know, Chinese students turning their backs on the flag and stepping on the flag at soccer games and doing some things that are just so, if you try to do that on mainland China, it would not end well. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't, at this point, doesn't seem like it's going to end very well. Yeah. Um, and I'm getting emails from people who are in Hong Kong right now saying it's very sad. You know, the MTR stations are trashed and, uh, yeah. you know, they can't go to work and yeah. they feel like they're unsafe going out in the streets. And, uh, you know, I thought it would actually die down with the start of school again, yeah. but it hasn't. No. And uh, because I saw that hope happen before with the umbrella movement, it just kind of faded away. Right. But, yeah. but now it's definitely there with much more uh, vigor. Absolutely. And uh, I don't think, um, I, I, yeah, this is really something that's very troublesome. Okay. Yeah. My very last question. This was a remarkable thing for the, the CEO and founder of Huawei to do, right? Yeah. To offer their extraordinarily advanced IP, everything, patents and know-how and all that, right. to a Western company to assuage the fears of Trump and his administration. Um, remarkable. I mean, almost un unheard of. How, <clears throat> do you think someone will likely take advantage of that? No. No, I don't think so. But I, you know, look, I, I have had, uh, uh, as a journalist, yes. you know, uh, I get uh, pitch stories all the time, right? Yes. And so I have to say that Huawei has a very effective corporate communications department. Yeah. And this is, I think, it's a very effective yeah. PR ploy, whether yeah. anybody takes it or not. Yeah, I agree. It's very effective. You know, look, it caught everyone's attention. Absolutely. It got big press. Yeah. Oh, they're going to concede. Huawei's going to concede. They're going to, you know, give us something. Yeah. But I really, I think this whole China tech ambition is unstoppable. Yeah. It, it's, it's, they're not going anywhere fast. And I think you made yeah. that point. Yeah, yeah. They're not going anywhere yeah, any yeah. fast. Yeah. And this is a real wake up call for the U.S. We need to pay attention to this. Yeah. Um, and finally, this story has gone mainstream. Yeah. And the timing for our event was uh, impeccable. So listen, yeah. it's a pleasure Thank having you, you here Mike. in Boston and MIT. Thank you. Thank you. I wish you the best with the book. Okay. Cool. Thank you.